You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McCuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello there and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm very pleased indeed to be bringing you an interview with the truly unique comedian and one half of the Bugle podcast. Uh, please be upstanding for the Grand High Pooh Bar of Bolshitistan, a man who tortures language until it weeps and begs for mercy. He shows no mercy. The pun grinder general himself, Mr Andy Zaltzman. <laughs> I'm in your shed, which yeah. is presumably where you write. This is the this is the hub of you know Zoltzman PLC. It's... Oh, no, I'm not PLC. One day, <laughs> one day, the, the great media empire that is Andy Zoltzman is based in this shed. It's yeah. and it's more than just a shed as well. I think to call it just yeah. a shed is sort of to do it a disservice. This is a yes. this is a premium. This is like a spare. It's I believe what's technically known as a garden office. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. So that okay. makes me feel like when I walk in it, it's an office. I'm, you know, at work, which is very hard to think as a comedian because yeah. your entire, your entire kind of uh, working life is dependent on you not thinking of it as a job. I think so. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's kind of maintaining the uh, necessary levels of juvenility and uh, uh, lack of seriousness to to uh, make things funny. So, but this is yeah. I have now a ten yard commute across yes. the garden. Beautiful. This is, and it's really just so that people can sort of visualise this. I have to say, on my way over, when you said, you know, text me when you arrive, I'll be in the shed. I did envisage something about a quarter of the size of this, made of wood with a little sleeping roof. (laughs) This is very. I mean, this is what Londoners would call an office. Yes. You know, it's 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 effectively a porter cabin, only way nicer. Yes, it's a porter cabin that you can't port, I guess. uh, Yes. A cabin. A, 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 <laughs> yeah. a cabin, there we are. We've, we've finally found found the right words. Uh, yes, so I, I believe it's three by four and a half metres, if I can remember from when we had it. That sounds like you've been pacing around it, Mikey, uh, making no, chalk marks. We, we ordered it, and then it, they brought it, they made it, and then brought it in and put it up. It took about three days. And do you like being in here? Do you, does, it, yeah. does it keep you feeling silly? Uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, It's better than being in the house and being reminded of all the things you're supposed to be doing in the house. So I'm Yes. Gonna, so you're able to sort of off. close the door and go, there are, you know, bills to pay and washing to be done, yeah. but I'm at work. Now. And, uh, yeah, children to attend to, whatever. Yes. You know, there's a lot of them inside, be done yeah. with it. <laughs> so what does your... Um, I don't know, what I, I, I'm, I'm going to flounder a little bit here, because 
I feel like I've seen loads of your Edinburgh shows. I have seen loads of your Edinburgh shows, and I I have listened to almost every single episode of the Bugle since right. it, and since well, it started as well. Wow. Like since back in the day. Not I'm not one of these insane <laughs> people that goes I've just caned five years worth in you know yes. three months or however long that talks. Um, and we've gigged together once or twice yeah, as well. Yeah. I was trying to remember. I think the last time we gigged together was with Otis Cannelloni in uh, Pete Jonas's gig, the Comedy Carnival. So that's going oh, right. back some yeah. years now. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there's loads, there's so much that we can talk about, about you and what you do and all the rest of it. And <laughs> people will be thrilled because obviously I, I would say something like 100% of my listenership probably also listens to the Bugle. Oh, right, okay. And they will be thrilled to, to see that you are literally live streaming cricket in the background. <laughs> yeah, we'll I, I write about cricket as well, so I'm technically... Yes. Technically, out the coal face. Nice. As we speak with New Zealand v West Indies on. So, I, I kind of, uh, I, I suppose we should start by, for people that don't know you, for the very few people that don't know you, can you just describe the various things that you do now? Because when I first met you, you were predominantly a stand-up comedian yep. and a comedy writer. You wrote topical sketches and things like that. What are the What are the main things that occupy your work at the minute? Well, the bugle is the the main thing. Uh, that's uh, my sort of weekly podcast with uh, with John Oliver. That's uh, topical, satirical, uh, a mixture of news and bullshit, uh, as you <laughs> have. Expose yourself to to a frankly unhealthy degree by the sounds of it. Um, that's the the main thing. That's the sort of focus of my week. So we record that now. We always recorded it on Friday. We just moved to Thursday since John started uh, recording. Uh, started doing his uh, new HBO show in the states. So uh, that's um, that's the 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 main. That's the highlight of my week, I guess. You now to okay. having that complete blank canvas to do whatever we want. Which even in the days when we were hosted by the Times and and paid by Times Online, they never interfered. So we've always had that kind of mm-hmm. freedom. So it, it fairly rapidly, after we started almost seven years ago, became the main main uh, focal point of my creative week, I guess. Uh, apart from that, I uh, write about cricket for Crick Info and do um, videos for them. So that's, uh, I guess, quite a, quite a major part of the week as well. Then gigs and bits of radio that come and go. So... Um, it's quite. I have quite a broad range of different things to do. So there's every day. I usually have something I either have to get finished or ought to get finished. Okay. And the things that I do get finished are the things that I have to get finished, not the ones that I ought to get finished. They then become the things I have to get finished. Usually piling up and being finished at five a.m. here in the shed as the sun is coming up outside. <laughs> <laughs> thinking I have to take my children to school in three hours. This this is not a healthy way to live and work. And is it, I mean, is it an enjoyable way to work? Do you enjoy that sort of pressure? Because I, I speak as someone who just this morning has been having an, a near anxiety attack or this stress of getting one or two things done that were slightly over. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like the, for me, the podcast which I now release weekly and have help with producing it and editing it and so forth, um, that stresses me out constantly. Um, and I often find that because I'm writing, I'm always writing towards the next Edinburgh show. I'm doing a lot of stand-up yeah. at the moment. So there's a lot of what I do. Um, but I find that the stress of having jokes to write is, you know, an enjoyable stress in some ways. But it really, I feel like I'm, I'm terrible at multitasking. Yes. It's, from what you've described, you've got a huge amount of things going on. Is yes. it fun to wrangle with them all, or uh, does it freak you out? Generally, generally it's fun. Sometimes it does pile up and... Uh, it feels like you're meeting deadlines rather than uh, 
you know, creating what you want to create, which I think is when the best comedy comes, is a, probably a, mi- a mixture of both, where there's the, the compulsion of having to get something done, but also you're essentially choosing to do it. So, um, so sometimes, well, inevitably, every comedian takes on too much when it's there. So uh, sometimes it, it does pile up. It's not really multitasking. I guess it's sequential unitasking. <laughs> Is that a term? That must be a term in yeah, business, I'm sure. Definitely. I'm a bit out of the loop with business terminology. So, um, uh, yeah, but generally I always find that I'm inherently lazy, therefore without an actual deadline that I'm going to be told off if I miss uh, or embarrassed if I miss, then I don't get much done. So it helps having lots of those deadlines in a lot of ways. And you say the, the bugle quickly became kind of more important to you than stand-up or occupying more of your time than stand-up? Yes. Uh, yeah, so we started doing that in late 2007. John went to the States in mid-2006. Um, and uh, my career was f- frankly going nowhere at the time. Well, this um, is uh, let, let's, before so, we get on to onto the bugle stuff. Let, let's yeah. talk about this because it is something. It's a running joke of the bugle and I believe your life from yes. having seen you on stage and known you personally a small yeah. amount. Um, but one of the jokes is that you are one of the features is that things were terrible for you as a stand-up. Right. <laughs> like, you know, you and John are all, you're constantly sort of saying, yeah. oh, you know, back when we had five people in a, you know, an art centre in Kendall and stuff uh, like that. Yes. And yeah. that's something that I think really resonates a lot because not only does it set you as an underdog, but also to myself as a comic who listens to it, I go, oh, I've been to that gig, yeah, you know, yeah. I've been to that art centre, yeah. you know. And, and also as a comic, you're probably thinking, yes, I had six at that Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I was lucky enough to have had six, I would have thinking that. But, but so let's let's start off with you as a as a stand up. Was stand up the first thing you did in in, in comedy? Uh, yes, uh, uh, it was. I guess I, um, it was the first thing I did in uh, what a proper comedy. I guess th- the first things I did in terms of making things to try and make people laugh was when I used to write sports pages on a student newspaper and just fill them with absolute bullshit I used to you know, make up events um, and or you know if I had to actually report an event that a few people cared about it was a student sport fundamentally no one apart from the people in it cared about it so you could be a bit more creative but uh, you know I'd sort of make up little narratives to go along to be a reporter for a hockey match and the claim that Marlon Brando was having a fight with a combine harvester in the background or something so it was so which was great fun to do and, I, you know, and did made, you did you sort of get away with that did you yeah did people like that yeah people did seem to like it not necessarily the people who were in the sports teams <laughs> but um uh yeah people seem to uh, like it and I make up events like the um yeah sort of into universities doubt harboring competition or whatever so that was uh I guess where I started trying to write funny things. The problem with that was that when I then left university to try and get a job in um, journalism, I had a portfolio of (laughs) absolutely unusable bilge and uh, spent six months on the dole looking for a job uh, Did you, if you were if you were writing that stuff when you were a student yeah. and you were thinking I want to get a job in journalism, was any part of you thinking that some of it might, or that those skills might one day be useful, or were you sort of thinking, well, I'm going to have to do um, the proper stuff for my job? I've never had much of a <laughs> long-term plan. Um, <laughs> so, sitting in his shed, <laughs> yeah. and the long-term plan has brought me here at the age of thirty-nine, Incredible. sitting in the sh- in my shed. 
with New Zealand v West Indies streaming on the internet. You've nailed um, it. That's, 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 where do I go from here, Stuart? Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I really knew what I wanted. I had this vague idea that I wanted to be a sports journalist just because I loved sport and um, uh, was pretty sceptical about reality. Um, so uh, I, I did a little bit of stand-up at university but, and I didn't really think of it as a, as a possible career. And, so were you were you doing sensible sports journal- journalism at uni as well as the silly no, stuff? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have been, and then I might not have had quite such trouble then getting a, a job afterwards. Um, so uh, I did a little bit of stand-up, then gave that up after a, a, a harrowing open mic act, uh, open mic night in Edinburgh at the festival in 1997, that went so badly that I thought that's I'm now retiring after one proper gig basically and then uh, didn't do stand-up again for uh, about 18 months so um uh but then yeah stand-up was um my main focus for a couple of years and then i guess i started trying to think of things beyond that uh, radio stuff and Okay, um, so with with, with the the stand up stuff that you did, were you kind of? I mean, I'm trying to envisage what that stuff was. Was it you doing sport plus bullshit type stuff, uh, or was it was it political? At that it point? was when did the no, it was start? neither of those things. I always wanted to do political comedy. I studied ancient Greek comedy at university, <laughs> and that's really strongly political. Uh, and I guess I liked, you know, the more political stuff on on. Uh, television. So, uh, but I didn't have the balls to do it for a couple of years, really, until I did my first solo Edinburgh show. I, what I did initially was, I guess, a mixture of. I can't really remember. I've got some recordings of it. It was some quite surreal stuff. I remember doing a routine about being given a Scotsman for Christmas. In fact, in that gig that made me give up in Edinburgh, that's where I opened with this routine <laughs> about being given a Scotsman for Christmas, and an audience full of drunken Scots. That proved to be a strategic. Misstep, um, and uh, uh, I thought I can't remember what else I had. One of the routines I had, uh, and then um, yes, yeah, so it was quite. It was sort of surreal nonsense, and then uh, the the harsh expediencies of the circuit made it, I guess, more middle of the road for a bit. And I then did the Comedy Zone in Edinburgh in two thousand with a set that was frankly shit. Um, who were you? Who was your zone? Who uh, else was on your? Danny Boy, Karen Taylor, and Spencer Brown. Okay. And, and I think I'd sort of, you know, as a lot of comedians do, you do what you can to get a laugh. And then I realised at the end of that that I, a I wasn't very good at it, and b that it wasn't um, really what I wanted to do long term. So I started then trying to do more political stuff and more inventive stuff. So I guess all comedians go through various phases early on as kind of. Working out how not to get booed off stage. Is that was that something? I mean, and again, going back to what you and John often talk about on the bugle about yeah. some sort of disastrous, catastrophic kind of gigs. Is yes. that you talking up for fun, kind of your feelings of of uncertainty, or were you getting horrible reactions from people? Well, no, I mean, no, it was. I got. I wouldn't say I was getting horrible reactions. That makes it sound like that's what happened all the time. But I did get some horrible reactions. Yeah. But I think. You know, if I'd just had awful reactions, I'd have given up. But if there's enough good ones, then you balance it out. But at the same time, there were some gigs where I had... I split the room into the room and me. So, um... <laughs> uh, and, you know, that's part of the um, the joy of stand-up, is that, you know, the success and the failure. Particularly if you're, you know, if you're a sport, uh, obsessed with sport as I am, that's as close as you come to playing 
kind of professional sport is having those wins and losses building up. Okay, <laughs> good column. So, um, uh, but yeah, we, we had um, both individually and uh, as a double act had some some uh, pretty <laughs> harsh harsh gigs. Some took some heavy casualties. <laughs> and did you? I'm I'm sort of trying to imagine what it would be like. Um, to see you go kind of go out to battle you know go into bat if you like yeah. you know, or out to bat I'm not a sports fan at all yeah. and uh, I'm trying to imagine you kind of try. what was your like did you ever do the commercial clubs did you ever do jonglers uh, I used to do the occasional paid 10 minute slot in uh, Camden and Battersea clubs but never regularly did a few spots at the Glee Club uh, occasional spots at the comedy store but it, I was never I was never in massive demand on the club circuit. Sure, um, sure. And, yeah, wasn't very good at it uh, and didn't much enjoy it. So I guess me and the club circuit reached a mutual decision to <laughs> let each other go our separate ways. And, I mean, you still do solo stand-up now. You've been doing yes. Edinburgh shows. Yeah, yeah. Loads. So, I mean, there is you're still attracted to the idea of stand-up. Yes. But it's a case of not... Because I'm, I'm sort of fascinated with this idea of people who are brave enough to keep doing their own thing. Yeah. And if they find that their own thing isn't working, rather than dilute it and make it work, people who are brave enough to stop or wait until they have their own audience or something. Yeah. I think that's the thing a lot of comics feel. I've got all of these ideals of what I want to be. Yeah. Oh, shit, no-one's going for it. Yes. Uh, yes, I guess... Um there's an element of uh, of that. There's an element of just basic practicality about it as well. That if you're not very good at something, there's no point carrying on doing it. But if you know, so I guess I found that I well, it's certainly when I did my first Edinburgh show and went went quite well, albeit not in a commercial or audience numbers way. That I guess that gave me the confidence to. Was to, that the, the nominated it, yeah, show, so the Dog Doom? Yeah, yeah. The, um, which was great fun to do, and I think that's when I sort of worked out what I wanted to do vaguely and with with stand up and and the developed a, I guess a style that was more distinctively my own um and yeah I guess you you I just looked for outlets where that would work um whether it was doing Edinburgh or, or uh, radio I guess where you can be a bit more creative with what you're doing rather than you know the club circuit at you know doing gigs at weekends it, it can be quite restrictive in terms of what you can try to do so um yeah it's a mixture of i'm not sure there's a great deal of idealism about it but it was really i just finding the the niches where i could do what i wanted to do and the things that i was was better at one of the the probably the funniest i've ever seen you be Right. Would be at the Honourable Men of Art during yeah. Ask Andy. Oh right, when yeah. Kitson would field, he'd kind of this would there was often the the end of that show. Yeah, yeah. That Daniel Kitson would field questions, put them to you, and you would improvise so brilliantly. Right. I mean, that was explosive. Yeah. You must have oh, happy memories of, well, of was, doing that. It was it was great fun. It was yeah some of the most enjoyable gigs I've had. And as you would have if you'd seen my. Yeah, my stand-up in the early days, as you probably did. The uh, I, I was always quite stuck with material. I didn't I didn't divert divert much from it. And um, doing that show sort of forced me into <laughs> into areas that I w 
hadn't really ever been as a comedian or was ever likely to go had I been left on my own. Sure. But um, was that was I mean was that Daniel's idea to sort of let's do I, this now? I can't really remember. It was all it, there wasn't a lot of planning in that show. It just things sort of happened or evolved. I can't really remember how it came about, but it was great fun uh, doing it. And um, yeah, I mean it wasn't. I think you might have seen it on a good night. <laughs> I saw it several times. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, remember, I saw it several times. I remember being it? sometimes good and sometimes less good. So every uh, time I saw it, you right. were right on the money. And I'm really fascinated with that dynamic between yeah. you as, uh, I, you know, you're a writer. You spend a yeah. lot of time writing. You're known predominantly for not necessarily your writing but the performance of your stuff which is very densely yeah. written yeah you know if I, the first name that comes to my mind is the you know the congressman's penis oh, <laughs> or whatever but you know you're the, the, some of the stuff you that makes you most distinctive from other comics yeah. is very very densely written yes and I was yeah. really interested with how when you were kind of released from that by Daniel throwing a question from an audience member yeah. at you that you just knocked it out of the park over and over again. <laughs> and I, I just wonder yeah. if it's maybe something to do with the idea of a double act or a partnership that lifts you out of your temptation to to write. Uh, there's... I think there's a... Yeah, there's a lot in that. Um, uh, and um, also, you know, I'd done the double act with John for sort of two years live before we went to the States and we'd done radio stuff for a few years as well and done little bits in each other's shows so we'd had a bit of a I guess a live dynamic that was the first thing I'd done on stage with Kitson and, and Alan and David O'Doherty did it uh, as well so um, it, yeah I, I guess ha having things to feed off you have to rely more on your instincts I guess also having I mean that was I'd been in stand-up for about seven years probably when we did the first Honourable Man of Art season um, basically treat it like madmen but <laughs> nattier costumes um, and uh, um, it I guess the process of writing creates certain mental processes where you make these links or disassociations that a lot of comedy comes from and if you I'm having sort of written things like that for a long time I guess there's an element of your brain that then learns to do it very quickly and instinctively. And um, that's also happened during the, the years we've done The Bugle, which started sort of after that first run of Men of Art. Um, we, uh, I can't remember if we did Ask Andy both years, anyway. Uh, but um, uh, we tend to write with not a great deal of time to the recording deadline. So uh, I certainly write in, I think, quite an improvisational way where I have an idea write it out and it's basically often a first draft that we record um, so it's not it's not sort of Ross Noble type improvisation but there's you're sort of accelerating the mental processes that go into creating comedy so I guess doing that on stage is another step in that yeah that um, there's, there's process certainly some of the funniest moments of the bugle are when you guys make each other laugh when you join yes. in and I, I mean, case in point I was listening to the most recent episode uh, with that little throwback to the uh, 12 fucks and a cunt joke oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I almost feel terrible saying because I'm used to hearing right. your voice bleeped out when you swear yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know again a perfect example of you just you know the ball coming over to you and smashing yes. it back. I mean, that's a wonderful joke. Yeah, that. Um, I, I sort of. We don't need to explain the contents of the joke because I'm keen to direct people to the latest episode of the Bugle. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. You know, Do, if they haven't heard it already. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was a. 
one of the very rare occasions where I just riffed I riffed the joke on the spot and it sort of came out almost perfectly. So it just happened maybe three times in my career. <laughs> so, um, but that one line that was yeah, that was um that was uh, for those who've not seen it or can't be asked to look it up, it, we were uh we bleep out our swears on the bugle because basically I think find it funny. It's funnier, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, so I asked Chris, our producer, because we'd had quite a sweary start, how many swears we'd had, and he's had, uh, he said, "In quite a sweary start, you've had twelve fucks and, a, and one cunt." And I said, "Well, that's basically a Jewish summary of the New Testament." And it just, <laughs> it just came out. But I think that was an example of what I was saying that there's, you know, I have a lot of jokes that sort of touch on my Judaism or, or <laughs> lack, lack thereof, of, yeah, the lack of the quality of my Judaism, <laughs> being a very bad Jew, and. Um, uh, um, you know, religion stuff vaguely. So it, it was just, I guess, making that that link between two, you know, the numbers twelve and one, and Jesus and the disciples. And I guess you, you, over the years, I suppose I've trained my mind. Yes. Not deliberately. It just sort of happened uh, th- to make those associations quickly. I suppose. And those are. I think that's a, that's a really good example of. I think what we're talking about here is the is the fact that when you're... Certainly I feel when I'm writing, if I've had a period of three weeks, say, I've been away or I've not been working, whatever, suddenly you're grinding to try and come up with stuff. When you're match fit, when you're writing all the time, that engine is very finely tuned, and as a result, you can be naturally funny more easily. Yeah, and it's almost... I mean, (laughs) to go back to sport, you'd hear sportsmen talking about being in the zone or whatever, in a state where they're not consciously thinking about what they're doing, uh, but things are just have a rhythm to them and they're reacting on their trained instincts. And I think there can be an element of that in, in, in both performing and writing comedy, where it's often at its best, where you're, it's not necessarily a non-conscious process, but almost sort of semi-conscious, where you're just relying on the, the, um, the processes that you've developed in your creative side over several years so this is andy i I got exactly what i wanted out of this interview i'm sorry if it's a little bit long uh on the other hand some of you will be thinking hooray it's a little bit long uh andy's such a nice guy and he gave some really thoughtful answers uh i'm really i'm particularly fascinated with this with the dichotomy between the written stuff and his improvisation and which of them provides the best results and how we as comics try to stimulate one from the other. Later on, we're going to be talking about the way the bugle is made and Andy's also very candid about what it feels like to be half a double act when your former partner is becoming insanely successful. Do join the Facebook group or you can follow at ComComPod on Twitter to get the most immediate updates and teasers on who's coming next. Um, I do wonder if I'm getting a little bit over-familiar with the current ComCom music. If anyone would like to do a cover version for me in a different instrument, maybe you play the clarinet. Maybe I don't even know what a clarinet sounds like. Uh, email me info at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to contribute some uh, some music or some stings. I might try starting to mix that up a bit. And on the subject of the music, do look on the Facebook group. Um, uh, the brilliant Dan Melrose, who recorded the original Twiddles for me, has released an album, um, and it's fantastic. So please uh, have a look. That's on Bandcamp. His name's Dan Melrose, uh, or you can find the link on the, uh, the Facebook page. Thank you, finally, for all of your donations. Do keep them coming in if you'd like. Remember, if you don't want to donate, 
donate, please feel free to share the podcast with all and sundry. Um, that's just as helpful to me. And, uh, and if you would like to donate, then you can, of course, just click on the PayPal button at comedianscomedian.com. I would really appreciate your support. Uh, any amount you choose, £5, £10, £20, or do I hear £1 a show? Uh, that would be very kind of you. Um, I've had some... I've just, I've just recorded Nick Doody. We've got uh, Arma Rahman coming out next week, uh, and the following week... Uh, is going to be Nick Doody, and that's an absolute blinder. It's up there, I think, with the Gary Delaney episode in terms of there being a single moment where someone says, oh, what, jokes? Yeah, they work like this, and then giving a really, really interesting and unique take on how to write a really good joke. And some of you will know Nick Doody from Radio 4, and some of you will know him from The Circuit. He's one of those guys that's... um, I don't think has anything like the profile that he deserves, but watching his live stand-up is just joyous. I, I, I think I said in the interview to him, he's he's like one of those John Gordillo, Simon Evans types where you kind of just go, this is this is blissful, tag, 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 tag. So um, look forward to that. Armour Rahman next week. Now let's get back to the brilliant Andy Zaltzman. Are you happiest writing in your shed on your own or playing with other people well I, I, I do most of my stuff solo and uh, that's I don't, I'm not sure that's entirely psychologically healthy uh, I'd, I'd love to work in a team I loved working with John when he was when he was here because we had I think quite similar approaches to to comedy and we worked really well as a writing team um, but that was just two of us really and when we we worked as part of a bigger team it generally didn't work very well but I think because we had our style was too distinctive and we probably weren't very adaptable um, uh, so um, I don't know I, 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 I'm not sure there's a happiest or <laughs> I, I sort of enjoy both really but I'd certainly like to do some more collaborative stuff than I'd currently do which is mostly sitting in this shed for slightly too many hours a day being intermittently overproductive to a deadline and unproductive without one so and what do you do when you're unproductive do you but i can imagine you bouncing a squash ball off the wall uh, <laughs> not on the wall of my beautiful shed <laughs> damage it like that um i don't know i will often end up just you know reading newspaper articles on the internet or uh, looking up sporting stats for out of just interest or for my next cricket piece or whatever so um or I would just end up writing something and deleting it, writing it again and deleting it again. So, um, uh, yeah, I've never fully found a, a super efficient way of of getting things written. Do, do you have any kind of principles that you work to of when you are staring down the barrel of a deadline, you go, right, I've got to do this. Do you have... And it's interesting, actually, because your style is so distinctive, I almost want to... I mean, what, what would you... If you were... To describe the the kind of the key uh, patterns that you work to, or tropes yeah. that you use, say, yes. what what would those be? I mean, I I sort of right. feel like I know some of them, but I'd like to hear what what you um, were, your take on it. I haven't I haven't thought about it very much, really. Um, well, uh, I don't know. I guess a, a lot of a lot of it, particularly in stand up, is uh, creating analogies. So if you're looking at a political issue, try and you know, find a, a way of expressing the comedic or satirical point you want to make without really talking directly about that that 
issue. Um, so it's sort of, a, I think in doing it that way, you can avoid feeling like you're hectoring an audience. Um, so there's quite a lot of uh, analogy. I don't, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not really sure apart from, uh, apart from that. I mean, quite often it's just trying to find a, particularly on the bugle, doing a lot of quite heavy news stories, just trying to find a, an, ang- an angle that deals with something that is inherently massively tragic or depressing or worrying uh, in a light way that nevertheless makes some kind of satirical point, whether directly or obliquely. But um, I don't know, what would you, what would you say? Well, I, I'm, it's, I, I just want to sort of put a pin in, uh, in dealing with tragic subjects. I want to come yeah. back to that in a minute because I think that's something you guys do phenomenally well and I'm always... Uh, really impressed by when those subjects come up on the bugle and you're like oh god we've got to talk about people being gassed or, or yeah, some, yeah. whatever it is something awful something sort of globally tragic um, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment I, I think yeah, certainly analogies I think you have an incredible facility for um, taking a silly idea like Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel yeah. or, or the Queen Victoria walks into a bar joke. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And and just put you you are very fond, I think, of setting up almost like as as a piece, not exactly as a sketch, but it's almost like it has the trappings of a sketch. Like a person does a thing. Yeah. We can imagine that person doing this and then pursuing it for a very long time, <laughs> like squeezing everything out of yeah. it, and then coming up with other sort of things along the way obviously there's a lot of um, stuff about uh, what a terrible Jew you are yeah. and there's uh, you know religion is a sort of fixation as, yeah. as well generally speaking um, and well they, I mean this is another question again you, like I know what you mean by and a load of bullshit yeah. what is bullshit to you what what well- because it's, it's something that this is a, you know it's it's a frequent yes, getting very philosophical now. Yeah, what is <laughs> what is bullshit? Uh, yeah, let's... When Aristotle addressed this many years ago, <laughs> <laughs> his treatise, "What is bullshit?" Um, well, a bullshit, I guess, is uh, essentially sort of the type of bullshit that I do on the bugle is, uh, I suppose, absurdity that might that sounds like it has some link with reality presented. In a, I guess, what a sort of parodic style, as if it's real. So, uh, I do a lot of things on the bugle, uh, yeah, kind of spoof restaurants, taking the piss out of modern kind of Blumenthal-style cuisine with a celebrity chef called Scluton Malvane, <laughs> and um, you know, just stupid, stupid dishes that, and you present it in quite a serious, serious way, as if it's true. I think that generally makes it work better as. As comedy, so I guess it's uh, it's uh, a lie coated in a casing of false truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, okay. <laughs> and and are there because like how much when you're writing something like the congressman's penis? So yeah. sit brackets, see the bugle. I'm not going to explain. <laughs> yeah. um, do you edit that stuff? Is it a stream of consciousness? That that particular thing was. Largely a stream of consciousness uh, from the initial premise of uh, a um, kind of PI discovering the severed penis of a congressman. <laughs> um, then I mean, this is already stretching the word premise to its absolute limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that rock solid premise <laughs> clearly deserved to be written. Um, 
So yeah, it, it's uh, that was quite quite instinct, quite quite stream of consciousness. Like I say, a lot of the bugle is written is written in a very sort of rapid and instinctive way. I think so. It, it was taking the the idea and seeing what comes out in a first draft, or then you know, go over it probably once with that kind of thing and try and tighten it up. But I, I think I slightly ran out of steam after episode. Too, and it fizzled out a bit. But um, <laughs> to cheers of relief <laughs> yeah, from the listenership. <laughs> but the first, I remember the, the first one I thought was really funny. Yeah. And then after that, I couldn't quite work out how to. I wish you'd kept going with the audio cryptic crossword. Well, we finished the I mean, crossword, I... so that was the the when we started the bugle. The idea was to do it in the format of a of a newspaper. Of a newspaper. Yes. So we still call it an audio newspaper. Although it sort of became less that uh, it we sort. Of, didn't drop the format, but it just evolved beyond that fairly rapidly. But the uh, the idea of having an audio crossword with a single clue every week. Um, oh yeah, so I really enjoyed doing, and I quite like doing. I've got some of them. So, <laughs> crossword clues are essentially quite like puns. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of yeah. double meanings of words. So. Um, uh, in terms of what, the bullshit the editing process yes. of the bullshit because I, I suppose what I'm getting at is um, is there a way for you like do you do you look at some at some bullshit that you've written and yeah. go this can be better bullshit yes. and if you do what do you do to it to make it better well um, I think um, uh, p- part of the the, uh, the way that it's worked on the bugle is because we have got a Devoted listenership. It's um, it's not really an in joke, but it's something that sort of works within the context of the bugle. Uh, that type of bullshit in stand-up might not necessarily work in quite the same format. But there's often in a piece of bullshit, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't an idea that is for a unit of bullshit, <laughs> yes, a, a, a clod of bullshit. <laughs> there's a an idea that can be transferred to something else, whether. A more serious bit of radio or uh, or stand up. Um, so, you know, if there's a bit that I think, oh, there's, that's that's funny. A way of developing it is you, it's to just rewrite it. Whether that's rewriting, going over the text you've written, and editing it as you go along, and trying to think of new twists in it, or rewriting it from scratch using the same idea and seeing what comes out second time, or just doing it at a gig. And talking it out and seeing how people react to it and where there might you know you often only by sort of doing it in, as you know from in front of different audiences you find different um, angles within a routine and uh, just different uh, wordings to find out where the best laughter points are so um yeah generally I think most routines can be improved by um, Sort of going over them again, as you know, with all 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 things, you can always find a new angle. But at the same time, I think uh, often that uh, sort of instinctive core of the idea um, is often it's often strongest when it's just sort of flown out of nothing. And um, if you then go over it too uh, uh, in too sort of conscious a way, uh, it. Can become forced, so I don't know, I'm not sure there's any. It works very differently for each each clod. It's, well, <laughs> what it puts me in mind of is something I saw, and I don't remember who was presenting at the time, but on an episode of Nevermind the Buzzcocks, 
call it Simon Amstel, I don't think it was Amstel, uh, Noel Fielding was on it, and obviously he deals in surreal rather than absurd, and yeah. I, I, I've never really made a, uh, a distinction between those two things before this conversation, going, yeah, it isn't surreal what you do, is it? It's it's absurd, and that's yeah. d- different slightly. Yes, I guess, yes. Yes, yeah. and uh, just the example was, he sort of, the presenter said... Oh, it's easy what you do. I could do it now. Oh, I can ride around on my own pillow or something. Mm. And then Noel Fielding obviously said something like, "Yes, but I can ride around on my own tears." Yeah. Or, do you know what I mean? And it was, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it got a, such a bigger laugh. And you go, "Oh, you really are." Do you know what I mean? There is some qualitative difference. Yes. In that surrealism, I wondered if that's the same in the absurdism that you do. That you kind of go there. Are, there are ideas which are absurd and zany and silly, but sort of too close to normal life to get a laugh. Uh, or are there other? What? What's your? Yeah, I say, say something about that mess of a question. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't. Know, I don't know really. I mean, a lot of it is uh, just sort of feeling what what you think is funniest, and um, that I guess is part of the craft of being a comedian. And sometimes that feeling is right, and sometimes it's wrong. And often you don't know until you say it and record it or perform it in front of an audience when you do get obviously a reaction there might be something that you think my instinct is right on this and the mm. audience disagrees with that in the strongest available terms so um, and uh, is there because presumably when you're recording the, the bugle you don't have time to go and try those no those clods out in front yeah. of a, a live audience yes. so you're just kind of taking it on yeah, just trusting the uh, yeah trusting the, the instincts that created it I guess and um mm. Uh, and hoping that the you know you've got enough of an audience that 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 likes those instincts, I suppose. Going back to the idea of, um, and we'll 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 come back in a minute to this sort of dealing with tragedy. I just want to talk a little bit about political comedy and what you yep. see your how political you see your comedy is, because obviously you're dealing with topical subjects. You're obviously very well read. You know what's going on in the world. And are you, does it, do you feel that you're using your material or your act or your comedy in whatever shape it is to try and effect political change? Um, no. Uh, I think to do that you need, um, you need, I guess, an audience of sufficient heft. So, uh, that's not really the purpose. You mean in terms of the, the size of them? Like if you if you had the ear of ten million people, you could make a difference. Yeah. So I think you know. So the Daily Show in the States, I think, does have some effect, not necessarily on the politics, but on the discourse and the way that people think about um, think about politics. But you know, just do, doing political comedy without that audience, you're not you're unlikely to to change change things. And it's not it's not really the the purpose certainly of what what I what I do, um, and there might be at times when a routine I do about a certain subject might slightly well, make people think of something in a different way. But um, that's not that's not the purpose of the political comedy that I do. That said, yeah, you know, if you do then get into a position where you do have that audience. Then clearly it can have that effect. So I think one of the, and you know, one of the reasons John's been so successful in the states was because he worked very hard on, on, on his political comedy here. So when he got to the Daily Show, he was, uh, you know, he had the experience of doing that to to go into that team and make a strong and distinctive 
um, impact. So, um, you know, without an audience, it's, you know, I really do it because that's what I love doing and um, what I think I'm best at, I guess. Uh, but in terms of it having a, a campaigning purpose. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Um, it doesn't really have that. I think it, you know, it can have that. And clearly, you have people like Mark Thomas and and Robert Newman who have a more um, a more sort of campaigning and journalistic element to their to their comedy. But um, yeah, and there's I don't know, you know Mark Thomas's campaigns clearly get they have some some effects, but. Uh, it's, um, I guess, the, the effect that it, it can have political companies in terms of you know, contributing to an overall, uh, overall campaign rather than being necessarily being the focus in itself. And, and also with with YouTube and the internet now, with things going going viral, then uh, it, it's it's possible to use comedy as a as a vehicle for alerting people to important issues or or shedding a new. New light on them. I got know some guys in India who did a, a video about um, uh, sort of misogyny in Indian culture, and it got it um, got millions of hits very, very quickly. Um, and I think it was using comedy to address a very difficult issue in a funny way, which is quite a powerful tool, I suppose. But um, it's uh, in terms of having an impact, it all depends on the size and nature of the audience. I think. Something that always troubles me when I realise how unpolitical my comedy is. Yeah. I worry that I'm kind of... I'm not engaging with the political process. I'm not I'm not taking part. I used to absolutely idolise Mark Thomas. I used yeah. to love his stuff on Channel 4, you know, all the uh, uh, Mark Thomas comedy products and stuff. It was so exciting to me yeah. as a kind of early... You know, teenager, I was in my early 20s. I, I used to seem so radical and just common sense and come on guys, you know what I mean? It was like, oh, I've made it sound awful, but you know what I mean? It, it used to really inspire me. And I've always felt a bit guilty that I don't do anything like that in my own comedy. But I suppose what I'm asking is from what you're saying, it's almost like for, if you don't have the audience, if not you or if a, a comedian doesn't have the audience to effect some change, then might his comedy as well be about pigeons as it is about politics? Uh, yes, uh, it might as well be. I think the best comedy is comedy that uh, has a degree of honesty about it. And if um, what 
you, your sort of comedic soul wants to do is comedy about pigeons, then do that. Uh, I don't think there's any intrinsic superiority in doing political or non-political comedy. Um, you know, so you know, people criticise McIntyre for doing comedy about nothing much in particular, but I think well, I don't really like it. But there's an authenticity to it. It seems that that's what he is as a comedian. It seems pointless to gripe about it. Um, it's what he wants to do and what people clearly like like hearing. So um, uh, I don't think there's... I, mean, I don't think you should feel you, you have to do something as a comedian because you think that is the right thing to do. I mean, it might be worth having a go and seeing how you get on with it. And uh, but, like I say, I mean, I always wanted to do political comedy because I'd studied it a bit and enjoyed watching it. Um, but uh, I've never thought there's a, a a superiority in in doing it. It's just what what I wanted to do. And um, yes, yeah, so, like I say, I think the best comedy is is um, what comes naturally from within the comedian, whatever that happens to be. I read a, a, a quote or uh, something you said, uh, something attributed to you in a, in an interview, which is that I find the more I know about an issue, the less I know what to think about it. Yes, yeah. I, I can totally <laughs> see that. I mean, that's, yeah. that's uh, something I find myself, and I'm sure a lot of other comics, find really blocking because, actually, how can you take a comic line on something without necessarily ignoring some of the counter-arguments or making some of the counter-arguments seem stupid or writing them off. Yes. Because comedy isn't uh, the same as discourse. That can be that can be difficult and um, uh, clearly life and politics uh, have a lot of nuance in them and uh, it is a bit easier to do things if they're simple and, and uh, black and white. So I guess that's one of the challenges is to make uh, of doing political comedy is to, you know, not necessarily express a standpoint, but a- address an issue in a in a way that uh, has sort of authenticity from a having sufficient knowledge about it, um, but without necessarily, <laughs> as you say, say the more you read about the economy or whatever, it's clear there are no right and wrong. Answers. It's guesswork up to the very top level. So, as a comedian, what can I mean? How do you process that and turn it into something that's a thirty-second joke? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's mm. possible. But um, I mean, I suppose then, what, the way most comedians would approach that, and yeah. I count myself guilty amongst this as well, is asking someone what they do for a living. They say banker. Everyone goes ooh, yes. and you kind of go, ha ha, see, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you kind of like. Yeah. But then there's, there's also comedy to be had from the confusion, uh, from not understanding okay. things, and the fact that not only do just ordinary people not understand it, but top-level economic journalists don't seem to understand it or be able to express it, and um, top-level politicians and economists are often getting things wrong and sticking the tail on the wrong donkey. So, um, uh, yeah, it's um, I mean, it can be, but I, I think there's... There's, there's a lot of very different ways of doing political comedy that that's, um, that don't involve an absolute confidence in your standpoint. At the same time, there's often smaller issues within an issue in which there is a clear you know, right and wrong, or at least a clear 
clear positions to be taken. Um, so uh, I think I know what you mean. Can you be, can you think of an example of a, a sort of sub issue like that? Uh, off the top of my head. Um, and we can cut out any time in between yes, to make uh, you look yeah. cleverer. <laughs> make sure there wasn't a two-hour gap. Yeah. Either. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I guess. Uh, I mean, there's some stuff that uh, did about fair trade years ago that I still occasionally, occasionally do, which is, uh, I guess, highlighting the the idea that the commercial exploitation of the developing world is wrong or naughty, but at the same time, there's you know within our economy, there's uh, an economic practicality to it. That I mean, are we prepared to not do that and everything to be more expensive, or whatever? There's there's so many different ways of looking at the overall global picture, but within that, the idea that you ruthlessly exploit workers with no rights in poor countries. There shouldn't be that much argument about it. So I guess you know you can pick on a sub-subject within a broader issue. Does that does something like the, the example you just you just uh, mentioned? Does that make you angry? Does the idea of people with no rights being exploited? Does that you know as a, a I don't I I I'm writing ju- and I will try to make myself sound less uh, hesitant and all over the place as well, but. Um, like because I'm not dealing with that stuff in my material, I'm dealing about my own anxieties and yep. fears and you know all those you know and you know nice things as well. Please come and see me seven o'clock at the Pleasant. Um, but I'm dealing with the kind of the the events I'm experiencing, so I don't need to worry about an emotional connection to those sorts of topics. If you are in your own comedy or on the bugle dealing with those things, does your anger come into it? Um, Do you ever feel like I don't want to write about this. This is horrible. Uh, it, can, it can do. Um, there are not many issues where it it's it makes me feel that I don't want to necessarily write about it. But obviously, there's it, it's a question of taking an, an angle that has uh, taste and dignity in it and addresses the you know whatever the heart of the satirical issue is. So rather than focusing on a particularly tragic element of it, you're Looking at a broader political picture, um, but I mean, anger's clearly clearly can be very effective in in comedy. Whether it's uh, anger about the injustices of the world or anger about how difficult it is to buy the right pair of trousers, or whatever, you know, it works on all all ends of the comedic spectrum. <laughs> I mean, well, let's let's talk then about the, the the process for the bugle. Something I wonder, listening to it, do yeah. you and John write your own stuff and then perform your own stuff to each other and try and make each other laugh? Yes, that's exactly that's how it feels like. That's it's... exactly what happens. Um, which, uh, again, from when we started, was largely a logistical thing that John was busy with the Daily Show. So, I think we initially thought we might be a bit more collaborative about you know working on things together and exchange things to and fro but it uh, it was just easier to do it to write separately and I think it worked more effectively so we just agree on the stories then write and come together for recording and not know what each other are going to say uh, and I think that's where the that brings the element of spontaneity to it so it's a mixture of written and spontaneous which yes I think is because quite, then you uh, then you can effective. top each other's jokes yeah and occasionally I notice kind of moments where 
you'll take a similar angle or something, but then one of you will be keen to go, well, it is like just what yes. you said, because also here's my two yeah. toffers that you haven't well, cut. Uh, uh, yes, that's, that's, that does happen quite a lot, and often there'll be bits that, you know, John will do a big spiel at the start, and I'll think, right, that's 500 words, that's not worth me doing, because I've basically written the same joke. Right, OK. Um, so, uh, how much do you how much do you prepare before you go into the studio to record an episode of it? Um, well, it's uh, I don't know. I guess a whole day's writing. Uh, I usually end up with a document of sort of two and a half to four thousand words, depending on. Okay. Um, not all of that gets used. I was going to say, do you, do you record, like, presumably some of it you record and some of it you don't even say, and then yeah. of the recording, some of it well, gets cut or now, s- now, saved for some cock of Amy best of episode? Yeah. <laughs> well, we now tend to, um, when we were at the time, we had a bit of a longer time in the studio, so we, we tended to uh, record a bit too much and cut some bits out, whereas now pretty much everything we record goes into the show. Because we have a one-hour slot in the uh, in the recording studio, so um, uh, it changed a bit. But uh, we basically use almost everything that we that we write. So there's an incentive to try and make it make it good, rather than just write lots of things and see what works. You have to sort of try and get it right the first time. And when you're dealing with, just to, to briefly come back to this, dealing with difficult subjects, do you have any kind of rules? Do you personally, or between you as a, as a double act, do you have any sort of sense of, like, we wouldn't really touch X, Y, Z, you know, or, or, or if we did talk about this topic, then we'd need to pull back from certain angles of it? Uh, not really. I think that's just a question of basic judgment of taste and... Um, uh, you know, we don't really set out to offend, and I don't. You know, our unless it's Rupert Murdoch. Uh, no, I don't think we. I don't think he noticed. <laughs> be offended by something, you've got to notice it. Um, uh, but there might be stuff that's provocative, but I hope it's not intentionally uh, offensive. So it's really just making a judgment on what what is and isn't in bad taste, which is usually quite an easy judgment to make. I think. Mm-hmm. Even on you know a really difficult issue like a war or, um, I mean you're, a disaster, you're so. you particularly if you're dealing with war and disaster in an immediate way. I I don't listen to a huge amount of political or topical comedy, yeah. and often as you'll know, what happens to filter down in the clubs is two years old anyway. By the yeah, time, yeah. hey, remember that you know <laughs> remember that thing from a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. Um, but you do respond. Obviously, the nature of the podcast is such that you respond almost immediately to a lot of things. And I find myself listening, kind of going, "Oh my God, what are they going to do with this?" Right. And you all, you always pull it out of the bag. Oh, that's good. And try and find <laughs> some, you know, some sort of of angle on it. I don't know. This isn't a question. I've yeah. fallen apart. But this is what I mean. I, yeah. I think. Well, that, I mean, that, I guess that is our job, I suppose. Yeah. If you can call it a job, um, <laughs> bullshitting for a living. But uh, you know, that's what we've been doing for over a, a decade um, John's been doing in the States for eight years now and we've been doing on the Bugle for sort of seven years so that's yeah I would, ho- I would hope we could mostly get it right on those things otherwise we'd be doing it we'd have wasted a lot of time so. <laughs> what are the uh, how would you characterise the dynamic between you and John what are your different roles within it um, I don't know I guess uh 
I, I do more of the subsidiary bullshit. Um, his stuff tends to be more focused on the big, the big news stories, which I also do, but I would do the more kind of parodic elements of you know the using the format of it being an audio newspaper and the the things like the the standalone pieces like the congressman's penis or the the restaurant things I was talking about earlier on. Um, but um, other than that, I don't I'm not sure if there's uh, too much difference in our functions within within the show, really. But given John's incredible acceleration into yeah. huge, you know, fame in America and all the rest of it, if you didn't have a family over here, would you have tried to? Would you have been, you know, tried to kind of engage with that more? Would you have moved to America with him and tried to blag yourself a job on the Daily Show or on a writer's staff or the, or the rest of it? Um, I, don't, I don't know, really. I mean, I'd love to work with him again on on stuff, whether it's on his current HBO show or uh, or other things. I hope we'd get to do something together again. But, yeah, there were clearly logistical difficulties uh, with that. Also, you know, that's sort of his... Uh, I guess I, you know, if I were to go there, I would necessarily be um, sort of tagging along a bit. Whereas, you know, I guess I'd hopefully try and carve my own niches back here and with my cricket stuff and whatever. But yeah, it's uh, there's been times when it's been been quite difficult that the openings for political comedy in Britain are almost nil. Really, there's there's very light topical game shows and a, a very Established kind of closed shop on on Radio Four for topical comedy, so it's um, it can get a bit a bit frustrating that there isn't the there doesn't seem to be the desire to to aim as high with political comedy as there is in the states. So um, but uh, I, I I don't know what what would have happened had I been single and without uh, without familial responsibilities. It was. Uh, quite an extraordinary month when um, it was in mid-2006 John got offered the Daily Show job in the same month we had two Radio 4 series decommissioned essentially and I found out that my wife was pregnant well I say I found out that makes it like it sounds like I discovered <laughs> she, she told me she was pregnant um, she told me she was pregnant after I'd come back from recording an episode of the department with John on about had about two hours sleep in three days and I got home and she said, "How was the recording?" Uh, I said, "Oh, it was, yeah, it was, it was fine." And she said, "Right, we've got to talk. I'm pregnant." So it was a, uh, all within the space of a few weeks. My pretty much my whole personal and professional life was um, significantly rearranged. So, um, so I don't know what what would have happened, but I hope we'd do some uh, some more things together at some point. Without wanting you to. Uh slag off your family <laughs> um, what did th- I just want to talk a bit more about what that feels like because uh, there are you know I spoke to Richard Herring on this show who talked very candidly about obviously the divergence between his and Stuart yeah. Lee's career and, and the way they're both doing as you and John are both doing great work in, in very different not different fields exactly but in different areas of public recognition so. yeah. and I just want to spend a minute on what that feels like, what your emotional reaction was yeah. to John suddenly going stratospheric. 
Oh, well, not uh, suddenly. Yeah, it's it easy to see yes. it suddenly from, from the outside. It wasn't. I mean, it was clear as soon as he got the, the job that it was... Uh, I mean, he was going to be very successful on it. Um, I always thought that was inevitable because, you know, he was very good and... Um, yeah, he was very prepared for it. As I said, we've been doing a lot of political comedy over the previous five years. He'd been doing it solo and we'd been doing it doing it together. He had also quite a lot of TV experience here. Um, so he was fully prepared for it. And he was going into a very strong, established show. So uh, nothing that has happened since has really surprised me in terms of the success that he's that he's had um, because he sort of went into, went into it prepared to succeed. Um, th- I mean, there have been times when I guess there's, I've been jealous of it to an extent, um, largely just because there's, in terms of my own career, I've had a, I guess, reached a bit of a frustrating plateau and uh, haven't necessarily gone about getting beyond that plateau in the most efficient way or the best way. But um, at the same time, the fact that he's done so well gives me a lot of... Uh, I guess confidence that should I ever get an opening to do a show like or be on a show like John has been on and is currently doing or uh, to contribute to to his show or my own show of that sort then I will have had that same that same sort of training to do it to be able to sort of hit the ground running if that if that happens but you know it's uh, <laughs> there've been times when that seemed a very very Long way away, given the 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 sort of nature of topical comedy in uh, in the British media, which is why doing the Bugle was a it sort of saved my career in a lot of ways because I I I really hit a bit of a a wall in both creatively and in terms of career progression, and then suddenly we were given this out of nothing really that our agents managed to get us a deal with the Times to to do a, a weekly show of the sort that we'd probably have always wanted to do on on radio here before John went to the States and um, that then in turn built up my live audience where now when I do live gigs I have a lot of uh, Bugle listeners in the crowd so um, so I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there but uh, yeah I mean there's been unquestionably times when it's been I've found it quite quite difficult not not that John's been doing well and I've wanted him to do badly but that sort of highlighted the fact that I've hit various brick walls in terms of my own uh, my own career but at the same time that's you know the 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 fact that he's done so well um, gives me hope that I, you know I could do not necessarily equally well but be you know have success at some point if I get or create that right opportunity and is there are you pitching shows are, are you pitching shows ever are you going hang on we could do this come um, on let's let's Pitched, wedge, a, wedge uh, a topical show into British consciousness. I've pitched a lot of shows to Radio Four. I've done a few, uh, a few shows. Um, I've, well, you know, I've, I've not really done much television here. Uh, I, I think I need to be a little more proactive, probably. And um, but whether there's that would bear fruit or not, I don't know. But. Um, yeah, that makes me sound like I'm grumpy about the state of my Not career, at all, which, not which, at all, because the, remember this... Fundamentally, what I, what I do for a living is I sit in my shed, I write whatever I want for a number of different outlets, I get to watch cricket and justify it as work, and I have uh, 
a wife, uh, two kids, and uh, and a shed. So um, fundamentally, things are great. But, uh, <laughs> there are moments when. Uh, I guess like all comedians, you always think you should be doing better than you are. Well, this is it. This yeah. is it. And I, I, I think all of us are thinking we should do better than we are. Something yeah. Alan Cochran's fond of describing yeah, himself yeah. as the invisible man of comedy. Yeah. Every person I said that to says, oh, God, I feel like that about myself. Everyone does. I just think it's thrown into particularly sharp relief when you're, you know, you've done a lot of work with someone. Yeah. And then, you know, whether it's their own show in the US or people go off and do movies or, you know, there's people like the, the stakes are so high now in terms of, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, we, we were all in whatever finals of whatever competitions we were in X number of years ago with people who are now millionaires. Yes. You know, yeah, and yeah. That's, that's kind of, whoa, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with my, in my own small way, my podcast has sort of given me a certain kind of, uh, it sort of turned me into a comedy pundit somehow. Right. And I, I, yeah, I yeah. didn't expect at all, but it, it, it's just another little element of, oh, you're that person who, as opposed yeah. to you're some guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those things, I, I, I totally get what you're saying in that, you know, it, it, what you've got at the moment is brilliant. Everyone is constantly, I mean, I'm, I'm very fond of imagining, whether it's true or not, that Ricky Gervais is going, what's the next thing? What, yeah, you yeah. Know, now I want to be Jamie Foxx. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have like whatever the, you know, whatever the next yeah. thing is. Uh, yeah. Um, what piece of your work do you feel most proud of? Like um, a specific bit, I mean, a bit a of specific material. bit? Uh, I'm not sure there's a specific um, specific bit. Uh, in terms of the specific joke, probably the 12 fucks would be <laughs> <laughs> um, In terms of the... I'm very proud of what we've done on The Bugle. It's been, I think, you know, we've kept pretty high standards throughout six and a half years and 270-odd episodes. Uh, the department that we did on Radio 4, which was me and John and, and Chris Addison, uh, I think was a really great show, and I still hope one day that it'll be made as a TV show, which is sort of how we envisaged it in the first place, as a sort of sitcom about fixing various bits of Britain or the world. Um, but that just, as most radio shows do, it just disappeared in the 11 o'clock slot and was never heard again. But there was, it was absolutely... Was that, that was Radio 4? Radio 4, yeah. yeah. Was, we did three series of it, and it was just packed with jokes, and I think it had a, some very good satire in it as well but it was there was barely a second in it that didn't have some form of scripted or audio joke uh, and I'm still very proud of that and when I listen you know I have it occasionally come up on my iPod on shuffle mm. and it still still makes me laugh so hopefully someday that'll reach a, a wider audience <laughs> This is uh, this might go nowhere. I thought of this one on the bus on the okay. way here. If you were going to step down from the position of Andy Zaltzman, <laughs> <laughs> and right. go, there are rumours going around. This <laughs> no, might be evident. And and become, I want to say, and go off to become a sort of happy beggar somewhere. I think I'm channeling some half remembered <laughs> fairy tale or a myth or something. But if you were going to be, if there was a replacement Andy Zaltzman coming in now, what would be your top tips to him? Um... Is that the one? Wow. Well, and starting or taking over from where I He's am He's taking now. over. You're handing over the keys to the shed. You and uh, your replacements right. of your wife and family have turned up as oh, well. Right. So he's not getting the wife He's and not kids. getting the wife and family. You're, you get I'll to, keep, go, it, um, you right, get to keep the wife and kids. But not the shed. But not the well, shed. It's going to be very difficult to deal without the shed. Um, <laughs> I don't... I've, yeah. Now, that is, that is something I've never... I've ne I, I guess I would advise him to work... 
uh, concentrate a little more on the career side of things rather than just the creative side of things. So I, I think I've tended to just be happy, you know, doing, making the bugle and uh, trying to sort of create the things I want to create and not really pushed, pushed, uh, pushed myself hard enough in terms of career progress. But... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know really. I, in what I don't know what I'd advise. Get more sleep. Fundamentally, that's learn to work to a daylight deadline. That is something I've never ever mastered. Um, and you probably find find more people to collaborate with. Probably. Do you think that that was thanks? That's the first outing for that question. That was a really good answer. Thank you. Because <laughs> um, I suppose what I'm getting at is like I definitely I know my one. I, I would go. It's almost like what what advice would you give yourself as a young person? Yeah. You know, yours is maybe you know focus a bit harder on your on the career side of things. But then part of the reason why the bugle is so loved is it's the the nature of it that you're clearly making your best friend laugh for fun. Yes. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? And yeah. like maybe a, a sort of sanitised, cleaned-up, career-minded version of the Bugle would be awful. Yes, and also, you know, had I been more career-minded, it doesn't, you know, I might not have been any more successful than I am. It might be to that That would have been a shame, wouldn't it, if you got up and done 50 press-ups every morning and it was the same? That, um, <laughs> you know, that might, that might just be my level, who knows? So, um, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I've, I, I've always just concentrated on the creative side of things and that's what I love most is trying to I guess trying to make people laugh uh, but whether they're listening on headphones or in an audience so. um, do you you still do the Edinburgh Festival you're doing Edinburgh yes, this, doing year. this year I've had two years off but I did I've seen ten. Helen's incredible poster yes for this amazing work yeah. um, do you have a strategy regarding Edinburgh is it a case of I mean what percentage this is a good question what percentage of your total uh audience capacity on an average night will be buglers I don't know uh, but a significant amount I would think I don't know over half I probably buy quite a lot but I, I don't know I sense that there's a significant majority but I, I, uh, I don't, I'm always aware not to just play to them uh, so um, but yeah like I said it's, it's certainly changed my the uh, my stand-up audience significantly doing it. This is something I was I was I interviewed Greg Proops for this yeah. podcast, and uh, he was talking about the the difference now in his live work now that he has the opportunity to say what he wants to say without needing to write it into stand-up. He can just say it to the audience yeah, that yeah. come to his live podcast. Um, that that you know what I mean? It, it's kind of it, it's changed both things. Yes, yeah, uh, de- uh, definitely, and um, and also you know having. Um, fans changes what you can do in stand-up. Because, did you just ahem before saying fans? Uh, you yes, did, because, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, because this works on the level that I'm at, where you know I might have thirty buglers in an audience of fifty, or you know, on a particularly good day in Edinburgh, maybe eighty in an audience of one hundred and twenty. I don't know, but it obviously also works if you're a TV act and you're you've got nine thousand fans in an audience of twelve thousand in an arena. Um, it fundamentally changes what you set out to do as a stand-up because you can you know you can trust a significant proportion of your audience um, and not have to sort of win win them over as you do if you're 
if they don't know you or they don't know much about you or they're a bit skeptical about you. So, um, so it's been absolutely great for my stand-up. I think that it's uh, I'd become a little, uh, not necessarily bored of it, but I wasn't massively enjoying it. Um, like I said, I was never that good at circuit stand-up. Uh, and so the bugle gave me an audience that meant that in my stand-up I could just go out and do exactly the type of comedy that I wanted to do and have confidence that I was attracting an audience that already was on the right wavelength. Did that answer the original question? It totally did, remember. it totally did. It just uh, it, it, <laughs> uh, it ended very definitely and I realised I didn't know what my next question yeah. was. Um <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we were, I mean, the original question was your strategy for Edinburgh. You do, you do oh, the, yeah, you do Edinburgh, the stand. So I didn't answer the question at yes. all. Yes, no, 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 that's I, OK, I digress. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know if I've never... Oh, this is part of the my total ineptitude at managing my own uh, career. Is I, I'm not sure I've ever had a much of a strategy for Edinburgh. I um, initially wanted to do it to challenge, you know, to learn as a comedian, and, and, and it's just one of the things that you do as a as part of your... I guess apprenticeship, for want of a better word, um, and and you sort of hope that you'll get noticed. But then after a few years, I, I just did it because I, I love doing it, and and as a way of continuing to develop new material and try and evolve and improve as a as a as a comedian. In terms of writing the sh- the show, I've tend to be quite haphazard about it. Like I say, I tend to work quite tight to deadlines. The problem with a li- live show is there is that deadline. Is slightly flexible that you you know you, you can always carry on working on a show even a show that you've done a hundred times you can find new ways of of um, of uh, of doing things so um, I don't, I'm not sure I have an Edinburgh strategy other than other than during the festival I try and put a new joke in every day okay just to, so there's a bit of the show that I'm really looking forward to to doing and I think that can help maintain the freshness of the rest of it. It's interesting, isn't it, the way that people approach Edinburgh because so many of us feel like there's a ladder. You start off as an open spot, then you're yeah. in the middle, then you're, you know, you, you feel like, ah, oh, there is the future laid out in front of me. Now I go to Edinburgh, now I go to Edinburgh again, yeah. now I go to Edinburgh again, and then often people go, well, do I just keep doing this now? Yes. You know what I mean? You sort of lose. Yes, I think, um, I don't know, I think I probably lost that quite early. My, my first solo show so I did the comedy zone in 2000 late night four person stand up package show and I really struggled learnt a lot uh, went back the following year did my first solo show which I really loved doing and I think it was you know, for a first show pretty good it got good good reviews almost no audiences I got nominated for the newcomer at the end but that was in those days just announced at the ceremony so it didn't even get three days of increased sales <laughs> and then I but thought they increased sales that hate you they're just, they're, they're just there because they got nominated yeah they, this is everyone's complaint they're and then, just there because you got nominated I rather cockily thought the following year um, okay I thought you know, that's going to that's going to guaranteed me a crowd the next year and mm-hmm. I went up and I was still only doing a 55 seat room in the in uh, was pleasant over the road too in those days, um, and uh, I thought, well, that's you know that I struggled last year. I, mean, I was playing to really pitifully small audiences, <laughs> but the, you know that now I've got that Edinburgh uh, accolade that's going to buy me a crowd essentially, mm. and I was playing to slightly larger small crowds than I had the year before, and I thought, well, you know, it's. Um, it doesn't make that much difference. There's some acts who just 
get a bit of zeitgeist and it does work for them but there's no point sort of pursuing that and I, I just from then on just tried to do the show that I most wanted to do and um, was probably a bit passive about it from a kind of career strategy point of view but I always loved doing it and always managed to not go mad during Edinburgh and enjoy doing the show and not get fussed about reviews or whether someone was coming in who might get me a guest slot on a panel show about home improvements or whatever so um, do, do you feel like an outsider that's you mentioned about you know doing panel shows I know you've done bits and bobs um but do you feel that you mentioned as well the closed shop of Radio 4 in terms of writing on uh, uh, yeah. other things do you feel that you sort of exist do you feel like a bit of a weirdo a bit of an outsider uh, to the industry or I, I, I don't know I, I, no, I don't think it's a closed shop in terms of writing on shows it was more that that uh they're not really looking for new topical shows. So if you wanted to to uh, get a version of the Now show off the ground now, it would be very difficult, I think, mm. um, because they're simply actively not looking for it. Um, uh, and in terms of an outsider, I don't know. I mean, I'm not panel show fodder. I've done a couple and I was not very good at them. I think I'd probably be a bit better at it if I did it now, but... Um, it's not something that I'm particularly fussed about. You know, I've never been on Mock the Week, but I don't know if I'd be any good on it at all. And if they were ever going to ask, they'd have asked at some point in the last 10 years. So it's not something that's worth getting worried about uh, or caring about. Um, so uh, I don't know, to maybe to an extent, but um, at the same time, I've always had plenty going on in my career. So it's not like I've been sitting at home doing nothing. I've always had particularly since the Bugle started, a lot of deadlines, a lot of things to work on that I've really loved doing, which is better than having a, a, a slightly nebulous goal of wanting to do something that you don't particularly want to do in order to yes. get to do something else that you might not want to do as well. So. Yes, this reminds me of what Sarah Pascoe said to me um, in, in 50 episodes ago. Um, uh, she sort of said, uh, where's the effect that you end up with the career that you want? Because yeah. you actually, what you are, you get to do all of these things that you like doing. What you like doing is writing and working on stuff and having the time to do that, or maybe you know, watching yeah. the time fly away whilst trying to do that. Um, what I want to do, what, even though I don't like to admit that I want to do it, is I quite like doing circuit gigs. I quite yeah, like yeah. the variety. I quite like it that one day I feel amazing and the next day I feel awful. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I, I like that in a healthy way, but I'm attracted <laughs> to it somehow yeah. and it ends up being yeah. what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Obviously, some people get good breaks, others don't. Some people take those breaks, others maybe don't. So it's. Do you do you think it's a meritocracy? A lot of my guests go, "Oh, great thing about comedy is it's a meritocracy." There's elements of meritocracy about it, and you know, when you start off as a stand-up, if you make people laugh, you'll get booked back for gigs. If you do panel shows and people like you on them, whether it's audience or commissioners, you'll get asked back. There is an element of it, but at the same time, you do need a a bit of a break you need to be the right type of uh, some, sometimes you need to be the right type of act at the right time um, it's not a strict meritocracy certainly but you know at the same time if you make enough people laugh then I guess you'll generally find something to do and finally um, what would be your final message what would be on your gravestone 
what you know what I mean as uh, a message to the comedy world no 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 let's take the idea of sorry in this, in this conversation you've been replaced right. with some sort of automaton and then killed um, <laughs> well I suppose what I'm asking is what would you say to new comedians as a, a less interesting way of asking the same um, question what what are, what is the, the sort of one or two defining principles that you'd say I see people making this mistake over and over again do this uh, I'm not sure I'm in any position to advise advise new comedians it very much depends what they want from a career in comedy do they want commercial and career success or do they want to be the best comedian that they can be the two aren't mutually exclusive but there are different ways of going about getting each of them um, I would generally say uh, do not be afraid of failure learn to embrace it to an extent uh, and uh, be creatively ambitious and uh, take take risks in terms of what what type of comedy you're doing don't don't be afraid of something bombs um, that uh, yeah so but I don't know in terms of in terms of constructing a a a, a career but like I said earlier on I think that the best comedy comes from an, a certain amount of uh, honesty in terms of why you're doing it so uh, I guess roughly that that was pretty badly expressed it's not going to fit on a gravestone Andy <laughs> that's not going to fit on a gravestone if I had to choose anything to do on my gravestone it would probably be I digress so <laughs> well, yeah in fact that's another thing I riffed out on a gig the other day they'll do you should carry a gravestone around with you at all times and just chisel on it through your life to make you sort of analyse how things are going through <laughs> The self-updating gravestone. That's, that's what. Carry a gravestone with you at all times, and make notes on it after every gig. Notes that you cannot forget. <laughs> Thanks, man. Pleasure. Cheers. So that was Andy, and I didn't even manage halfway through the interview. I remembered at the end, or at some point during this interview, I want to say the phrase. Boom, Andy. But I didn't. I completely forgot. And I mean, I, I frequently say that to my girlfriend even, so it would have been nice to say it as Altman. He was absolutely brilliant, wasn't he? I mean, I'm assuming you're all conversant with the Bugle podcast. Obviously, you, if you're not before, you don't know what the hell we're talking about. It's absolutely fantastic, so do give it a try. And it's starting to feel like, I mean, it's been going for years, it's starting to feel like it's one of those institutions like, I'm sorry I haven't a clue or something. It's got so many in-jokes and references and tropes. It really feels like a family and uh, it keeps me company and makes me laugh a very great deal. Thank you to Olivia Phipps for some help with the Podmin for this episode. Uh, this episode was not incidentally co-produced by Nathan Wood because he's been busy doing World Cup things. I did it all myself, which is why, no doubt, it doesn't sound as good. Ha! Back next week with Arma Rahman. By the time you hear this, I will be at Glastonbury Festival, so if you're listening on your way to Glastonbury, come and see me MC the Cabaret Tent at lunchtime on Friday or doing a set there around 6pm, 6.30 on Saturday, or I will see you all smashed up in the rabbit hole. That sounds like an awful sentence. It was meant to sound like a sort of enticing, hey, I'll see you, let's get all smashed up in the rabbit hole. I think Let's Get takes the edge off it. This has gone on far too long. Bye for now. Um, oh, Armour Rahman next week. I've recorded that already. Absolutely fantastic. He's brilliant. Prepare yourself for next week's podcast by watching and um, search for uh, any of his stuff on uh, YouTube. It's A-A-M-E-R. 
R-A-H-M-A-N. This is nice. I'm setting you homework. Um, but the biggest, most successful clip and one that we'll be talking about a little bit in that interview is reverse racism. If you search reverse racism on YouTube, you will see a very funny unpacking and total uh, uh, destruction of that concept by Amir Rahman. Watch that. Then you'll know what we're talking about next week. That's everything. Okay, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.